always got to get like the good posture. I don't want to be like slouching on camera. Yeah, I'm just gonna go straight to a slouch. <laughs> just get right into it. Just don't even cross the. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> don't even cross the legs. Just nah, wide just open. Let it rock. Just get into like you know it's like when you get on a plane, and you just try to feel like get as still as possible. I try to do that. I try to just like sit like a monk still as long as I can without moving at all, just to like flash forward in time. I think it's gonna work. Well, yeah, it's I. Plane travel is one of my least favorite things in the world. Just again, as a fellow tall guy, it's just right there with you, partner. It's you either suffer a lot or you pay a lot of money and suffer a little yes. bit less. Yes. Will you pay more money to suffer a little less, or I'll you pay, go full I'll, monk mode? I'll pay a little extra to like get that that exit row. If it's longer than like two hours, I'm willing to make the sacrifice and save my fellow passengers. That's and nice. sit there and do it. Awesome, but man. Most of the time, no. Just so you guys know, this isn't uh, a golf podcast based on the, <laughs> the preppy look of, of the two guys it, here. It will be if I have anything to say Yeah, about I was about it. To, we're here with okay. J.P. McDade, comedian and writer. You are like a golf guy, aren't you? I'm a you? golf guy. Yeah. It's, got, it's gotten crazy in my 30s, whereas like, I was always into golf, and now I'm like, oh, shit. How has it escalated in your 30s? I was just like way more into it. It's like all of my YouTube search history. It's either like <laughs> golf tips, highlights golf related content like i've bought more clubs and stuff i've i get out there i'm at the flushing meadows pitch and putt all the time nice you've got a really gnarly swing i have th- seen you post it oh thanks man on Every your time. stories i you see i've i want to be in a golf movie because i'm not nearly good enough to like to actually be a good golfer but i could absolutely play one in a movie right i could fake it for you know you give me enough takes i could look pretty good they've had so many sports movies where like like Gary Busey in Rookie of the Year just did not look like he could throw a fastball. Yeah. So I feel like if you if you got the facsimile of a golf swing, you can be in Tim Tin Cup too. Absolutely. No problem. Oh, reboot it, baby. Straight to Hulu. I don't care. Put me in there. I've never been uh, a golf. Like I don't. I don't like golf proper just because it's like kind of an. Ex- it seems to me like an expensive and time consuming hobby. Yeah, it's kind of for smart people. But yeah. <laughs> but I do love. Maybe this lines up with only for smart people. I do <laughs> just love a driving range and oh, just going yeah. there, turning my stupid brain off, just trying to have the smoothest swing possible and just like clanging a bucket of balls. I'll go there till they kick me out. I could spend all day at a driving range, no problem. And I have. What uh, I I, I want to get this perspective just from a golf person before we get started. The yeah. the live thing is like it's all very bad, right? Like it's, that's what it seems like to me. It's pretty bad. It seemed like, like it fractured professional golf in this weird way, and uh, just threw such a huge wrench in the works. I mean, the silver lining is that it exposed some like flaws in the PGA Tour, like in terms of how people get paid, I guess. But it's all above my pay grade. But uh, overall pretty bad and now it seems like they're just going to merge but the merge might get held up in the courts and the department of justice it's a whole thing but uh yeah overall not good all right that's here's how you know it's in the simplest possible terms here's how you know it's bad tiger woods turned down 700 million dollars (laughs) plus to play on it the greatest winner in the history of golf turned down this tour that was spearheaded by greg norman arguably the biggest the highest profile loser in the game of golf. So like the biggest winner versus the biggest loser. That tells you about all you need to know. Also, didn't they have like Brooks Kepka on TV like apologizing for 9/11 or am I wrong about <laughs> that, that? Something of that something of that nature definitely happened. Where there was like hey, you know, I said some stuff earlier about how the Saudis did 9/11, but uh <laughs> <laughs> maybe they didn't. They just have like, you know how the World Series of Poker brings out millions of dollars in cash. They just have that pile of cash behind them and they're like Guys, it's complicated. Yeah. You know, there's we've all changed. We've grown as people. The world is different. People now. are people wherever you are. You know, it's Saudi Arabia, America, whatever. We're, We're all, all one family. Red. It's all a human <laughs> race. Uh, yeah. All right. So that's that's good to know that like my theory that it sucks is backed up by a person who actually knows golf. Yeah, it was. I think they they were pulling in eighty five hundred viewers or something on the CW. Oof. It was just not working. Brutal. Um. So in addition to being a golf guy, JP is a comedian on and a writer. Uh, yeah, on, on the side. <laughs> uh, a comedian or golf, uh, a golfer with a comedy problem, yeah. maybe, as a, oh, maybe that's the phrase. Get a sign made for me to put in my office. That's like, I'm, like, uh, I'm a golfer <laughs> with a comedy problem. Uh, we met, I, I remember, on the set of a J.L. Covan sketch. Whoa, that's where we met. Holy yeah. Oh, shit. Yes, the, yeah, classic. Oh, my God previous guest of the pod it was louis ck's comedy school yeah comedy academy so it had to be like 2013 2014 after that video of his took off and yeah. you were playing the role of anthony jeselnik. anthony jeselnik 
I was like one or two years into comedy. It was like the first really not outside of com- like sketch thing that I ever did. Yeah, because I, I had not seen you before that, and then I feel like maybe like a year or like not too much longer after that, I saw you kind of like popping up everywhere. But you were like, you were brand new to comedy. Yeah, we started seeing each other at mics and stuff more after that. Yeah, I think we're around this. I'm 37. How old are you? I'm 34. Okay, so you're a little bit younger than me. Wait, so what brought you to New York to start comedy specifically? Just, yeah, we'll start from the beginning. Yeah, I was, um, I just graduated from college. I hadn't done anything comedy related yet. I was moving to New York for a job in banking. I just got a job out of college, just like a regular ho-hum who gives a shit banking job. And uh, I'd, I was living with a couple of my good friends from growing up. We like had an apartment together and uh, I had like 140 Twitter followers. <laughs> and I would every now and then I would get a like or two. I was like, damn, I must be good at writing jokes. And uh, and my friends like gave me some encouragement. I'd been living in New York for like a year already before I just like decided to go do an open mic. And uh, I didn't even decide to do it. I was... Oh, shit, it's all coming back. I was I was getting drunk at a bar in the village, <clears throat> and um, there was a server who worked there. I think her name was Bree. Shout out Bree. And uh, I was like drunk, talking about like how I had this kind of little dream to do comedy yeah. that I'd not told many people about. And she's like, "You got to do it. Just go do an open mic." And she like gave me the encouragement, like just go check one out. And I found an open mic in uh, the Lower East Side at a bar called no fun it's it has a different name now but it's oh it's still a bar what it's like that it's like a narrow bar and it had like a little showroom in the back and the yes. the mic the stage was a literal box yes it was like an 18 inch high box that you would stand uh, on i'm like i'm it's it's one of those things where it's like very hazy in my mind and yes. it seems very but I, i'm having a hard time like really crystallizing it but it's like i'm trying to remember a dream that i had and it's like yeah i think that happened it had like leather kind of uh club style booths in -hmm. the back like four or five of them it was like not that big of a room and um i just went in there to watch and i drank a couple tecates i was like i'm gonna put my name on the list i just got in there and i did six minutes i guess i had been writing for a while i wrote a lot of like presumably terrible jokes and i just got up there got a few pity laughs i was like oh i'm the best at this that there's ever been <laughs> i gotta make this my entire life and was and it was like that it was just like overnight yeah it was overnight i like well more or less i would just i would go to that mic every week and then i found out about others and then uh, i well i kind of dipped my toe in at first but then it picked up more and more and by 2013 i was doing uh, like middle of 2013 i was doing an open mic almost every night Okay. Just in full swing. I was thinking back on this before you came over because I was like, I'm trying to remember what JP's day job was before, like, like when he first started. And yeah. I, I, in my brain, I was like, I think he was in finance and banking, but maybe I'm just saying that because he's like tall and from Connecticut. So, like, I <laughs> fair enough assumption. I don't know. But, th- but yeah, that was. I mean, that was what you were doing. At we the were time. two of the guys who would be wearing like a button-down yes. shirt. Yes, I wasn't. We were. Yeah, I wasn't alone in that because I yeah. had to dress business casual at my day job during yeah. that time. And uh, yeah, I would show up to the creek in the cave at six o'clock and just full on button down, tucked in a slack, standing. Yeah, you were the thumb. UVA business casual. I was Wake Forest business casual, but I was like, we'd have we'd have button down shirts on. I remember, and all comedians are like waiters and dog walkers. Yeah, and I remember they, someone asked me if I had an assistant. It was awesome. I was probably making forty k a year. They're like, you have an assistant? I was like, yes, yes, I do. Yeah, it's just so funny how like all. Like we, all the comics, we kind of end up in the same room together, but like kind of our, for some people, our lives outside of comedy, like that you can't conceptualize them really. Not at all. They couldn't like see into what we were doing. And like, I kind of have a hard time wrapping my head around like, it's like, how do you make enough money to pay for your apartment? Like walking dogs. That can't be. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm barely making rent working in an (laughs) office. Yeah. I was living in like a hellhole in Brooklyn and I was like paying not that much i was like how yeah how do people live people just in squalor yeah and and it turns out yes yes and can't (laughs) afford a cup of coffee in the morning like constantly stressed about money and i think that's like the one thing i couldn't do how did you find like bat when you really started like doing comedy and like hitting mics hard how did you find balancing an office job especially one as like demanding as banking can be with like with comedy stuff i was pretty lucky because my job was not that demanding it didn't pay very well but it also like had set hours where I would be out of there at five thirty or six thirty, and I'd be out in the, I'd be in Manhattan. I'd be ready to do mics. Great. But it was like I wasn't getting paid a ton of money. I had a moderate amount of responsibility, and I was like I could you know I had paid time off so I could go do that. But it was uh, it wasn't too hard to balance. I I honestly found like it was easier to 
get my feet moving and go do open mics and go do shows because I would be up and about. I'd be like, you know, up at a reasonable hour mm-hmm. and I'd have a full day of work and I'd have some momentum going. And I, th- I found it was easier than like other times in my life where I just had the entropy of like getting off the couch in the late afternoon. I was like, okay, I guess I got a shower. But I was out there. I was like, they, the balance I struck was basically after a few years, I'm not going to give a shit about this job anymore. And I'm just going to like give all my attention to comedy and whatever happens at this day job happens. I don't mm-hmm. care. I remember at one point um, they had offered me like my boss's boss was like, uh, we want to relocate you to Richmond, Virginia or Scranton, Pennsylvania. Name your price. We'll give you a team. You'll be managing people. Whoa. But the funny thing was, he's like, name your price. And there was a beat and he's like, and don't say a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> not even name, that much. Name your price to a point. Name yeah. your price. And it better be $78,000. But, uh, it, but it was like, yeah, that was going to be the end of doing comedy in New York. I would have relocated. I was like, I, I immediately was like, I can't do it. I got to stay in New York. But they didn't know that I did comedy. Oh, really? So, so other, pe- other people were like, well, what's keeping you in New York? I was like, uh, you know, family, family stuff. Just got to be around. Dude, I had that same thing where I never told anybody at my day jobs about stand-up. Yeah. But, like, they always seem to find out anyway. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, they just, like, look you up or do whatever. Like, they're like, why is Pete leaving every day at 530 on the dot and, like, <laughs> not hanging out with anybody? Um, but like you were able to keep it a secret from them for like until the for end. a long time. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember um, a few years after I got laid off from the bank and I was doing other stuff, I got a text from that same like big boss, and he like a long text. He's like, "You're a fucking comedian. That's so great." Blah blah blah. Like just <laughs> on and on and on. There is nothing people. There is nothing people in a corporate environment love more than like knowing someone who's an aspiring comedian. Oh, yeah. I feel like because they can kind of envision it, or they because ev- everyone thinks they're funny to some degree everyone like thinks they could do it even when they say like oh i could never do that yeah like, it, that means in their head they've like visualized it to some yeah. extent i feel like and now it's interesting i mean i have a day job now but like if i was in a corporate setting where there was like that like considering the amount of podcasts that people listen to mm-hmm. and how like huge comedy is right now it would just it would there would be a lot more questions to answer there yeah. already are i mean there are guys at my the guys at my day job are, are cool but they like you know they blow me up with questions about this and that person like what is your take on this thing in comedy i know i think that's like kind of part of the reason why i never shared it just because one i didn't have a lot going on so people would always if whenever they found out they'd be like when's your next show it's like you don't want to come to any of the shows (laughs) that i'm doing right now oh i remember now the um the way like they officially found out that i was doing comedy was i was doing uh roast masters at the stand a lot i did a lot of those and they put all the videos on YouTube. And so it's like comics saying horrible things to each other. And uh, they'd get thousands of views, like a good amount, like not mega viral. Some of them did, like Dina Hashem went pretty viral. But um, they had like a fan base. And, you know, I think my my boss at the time stumbled upon a video of me doing a roast battle. And uh, she's like, well, I think it's great. And I'm like, <laughs> all of my internal organs have gone to my feet i'm like on the phone with my boss i'm like oh god just please kill me please kill me i just i don't want to i wanted to like grab a cop's gun and just manchester by the sea myself (laughs) i wanted to die so badly and then she's like okay so i was in a compliance job in banking and there's like you know restrictions that you have and she was like okay that's fine we just need to uh, just need to make sure you're not making any money from comedy right and i had to be like officially no, I am not making. I had to like sign a document that said I don't make money from comedy. That's crazy. That was demoralizing. Yeah, it's like you couldn't even like lie. It's like, no, things are really on the up and up, and I'm doing. It's like now, yeah. According to this legal document, this piece of paper, just fucking nothing from it. I always balanced it pretty well. There was one like incident where so I submitted writing packets. I was starting to submit writing packets probably around like 2014, 2015. No, no responses. At, which is the norm but then in 2016 i submitted a packet for the the president show like the the cartoon president show that was going to be a, that was on comedy central it was after trump got elected yeah was it my our cartoon president our cartoon pre- i believe i think the it colbert was, one or maybe no no show? it was the know. it was the uh tony tony adamanic one where no it was not a cartoon it was live action oh yes yes okay but yes it's like trump had a talk show basically. trump had it exactly so okay. i submitted a packet for that and they said uh, they they want to take a meeting, and they're located in Manhattan. I was like, great, I could go on my lunch break from work; it'll be no problem. And I gave myself like 
an extra half hour to get up to Midtown from the financial district. I was like, this will be a breeze. I get downstairs, subway's not running. There's oh, not another no. train coming. I was like, all right, I'll go a few blocks over to the four train. It's not a big deal. I'll get that one. That one takes me up, and then I have to get across town, and I didn't plan it out properly, and uh, I wound up getting in a cab. Long story short, I wound up r- jumping out of a cab a few blocks away from the building and sprinting. I'm already late. I'm like five minutes late to this meeting to like get you know a dream job, and I'm just in a dead sprint, and I get in there, and I'm beat red. I'm doing that thing where you're like trying not to act like you're out of breath, and... Uh, it's they're like do you need water it's like yes i very much need water right now and uh so i was late to that meeting and uh you know long story short i did not get that job but that's like the worst feeling though especially when you're doing comedy (laughs) and holding down like a day job specifically an office job at the same time where you have these like competing interests with with each other and like trying to find ways to balance them because like having just to go to that meeting is like stressful and exciting enough but then you you balance like all right well now i have this qualifier i have to leave for my office and time it out and go from a certain place and then you're running late to the meeting it's like how is that going to affect me getting back to work on time like all these things just pile on top of each other and having to manage that stuff at the same time is like the absolute worst i think in that meeting they asked me like okay so you have a day job uh what would it take like if you if we were to make you an offer like how much notice would you have to give? I remember being like, I would call them and tell them I'm not coming back. Like, there's no notice. Half baked at the at the burger place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't even go back to do the fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You're cool. I'd just be, I'd be, I'd just be gone one day, mm-hmm. and they'd have to figure it out. Vacate the desk. So that was what. Yeah. That was all right. So 2016, because I remember like, and this is just my own like, outside outsider personal perspective. Like things kind of, I feel like started taking off for you around that time. When did you do just for laughs? 2016. Okay, so it was like that summer, and then like submitting the packet to the president show. Yeah, I guess that might that must have been 2017 or something. The but yeah, early show on. or whatever. But when stuff was, like that was happening. But, but yeah, did you, did you feel things like like could you feel like a sense of progress throughout those years and like and like how did that like did you have like anticipation for like oh I'm gonna be able to leave my day job soon yeah how did that kind of like unfurl yeah it was I I, I had a, a few of those moments where it was like oh I get to imagine have these little fantasies about, Oh, I'll be able to quit my day job soon. And I'll be a headlining comedian. I'll have 48 weekends a year mm-hmm. booked headlining and I'll be on TV shows. And it's all fantasy many a time. It's all happening right now. And I didn't realize at that point that it like, it's really not linear for most people where like you're, you're going to get little breaks and fits and starts like that. So like, yeah, summer of 2016, I did Bridgetown. I'm wearing the shirt today. And like, um, that was a few months before JFL. Found out about JFL. Did new faces on Rept, and uh, like signed with a manager. And I was like, okay, things things are you know moving forward. And then got a few little like minor TV gigs and things from there. But it was yeah, it was uh, it was definitely exciting. Where um, I was like, oh, this is it. I'm doing. And it was like, I'm, I've only been doing comedy three years, but I guess I'm already the best at it. <laughs> And it's like, if I look at video of me doing stand-up from that time, I'm like, wake up, do something, like, be better. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it, there's truly, uh, for anyone listening, watching at home, watching old tapes of yourself is painful for a lot of reasons because, one, you just see all these things. You said, like, you want to improve or, like, yeah. you want to scream through the screen at yourself to change or do better. But then there's also, and I kind of feel this now, where it's like, all right, well, if I didn't realize I was doing those things then – like, what am I doing now that I'm not realizing? Which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a sign of growth. Yeah. It, it is a sign of growth, but it's like, all right, well, there's something wrong now that in like two, three years down the line, I'm going to want to yell at myself yeah. for doing. It's like, it, it's your hope. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like, like I mean, I, sometimes I get in my head about that stuff. I feel like it's kind of hard like not to live like what my current faults are. Yeah. Watching a tape of yourself. It's like watching a sex tape and realizing <laughs> that you're fatter than you thought you were. <laughs> and it's like upsetting, but Someone told I, I was I was talking to uh, Matt Broussard recently. He's a good friend of mine, and like uh, just a great comic. But he received a piece of advice. I think I think it was Seton Smith who told him, so it got passed down to me. And it's like if you watch a tape of yourself, you don't even need to have a critical lens. You don't even need to be actively thinking about what you're doing. If you just watch yourself, you're getting better. Okay, it's like an automatic subconscious thing. Stuff is going to like seep into your brain 
that's going to help you later on. Yeah, like little ticks and stuff that you see you become like maybe like a little yeah. more conscious of and like actually stop, try and stop doing when you're on stage. I've realized recently that, and I've noticed this even in the moment where like there are certain hand gestures that I do on stage only when I'm not doing well. Really? <laughs> I was like, okay, this is the, this is the bomb indicator. I've got to <laughs> stop doing this little come hither motion with my hand. Like you and could like, watch a tape on mute and be like, oh, I'm bombing. I can yeah, tell my hand. He's not doing he's not getting what he wants there. That's tough. So when so that banking job that you had, yeah, that ended because you got laid off. Like when did when so did they, that happen? They told us with like two years notice that our site oh, was shit. gonna be closing. Wow. And it was like a countdown from then and everyone who had a rational brain went and found another job somewhere. And uh, I was just like, I don't care about this job. Whatever happens, happens. I'm focused on comedy. And, and what um, year was this? Did they drop that news on you? Uh, they dropped that news, I guess, in 2015, and I wound up getting laid off in the middle of 2017. Okay. So I had plenty of time, and I'd like move positions or whatever. It was, it's all boring, but um, the, yeah, they gave us plenty of advance notice, and I could have looked around and um, probably found a better banking job. But my concern was like, okay, a the job is going to be probably higher paying, probably more pressure than the one that I have now. So, and on top of that, I'll, you have the pressure of starting a new job where you have to like be the best version of yourself. And I was like, I don't think I have that in me right now. You got to be your interview self for at least a couple months. hundred percent. And then, um, I was able to like write it out. They gave me like three months severance and, uh, I was just kind of hanging in there for a while. I had some savings and then, um, I finagled a, a writing job at comedy knockout on true TV, uh, non-union. So I was, uh, we can talk about it. We can, we can talk. But uh, yeah, so I was, uh, and that was exciting too because I was like, oh, maybe I'll be able to string together comedy jobs now for the rest of my life. And, this is, and I was like, there will never be a global pandemic that kills all the momentum I've built up. This will be great. A comedy knockout happens in 2017. 2017 that, or 2018. Okay. I think it might have been, no, was, I'm getting all confused. But I remember I did an episode of the show. They said, hey, if you ever want to submit a packet, blah, blah, blah. And then I wound up uh, getting a writing job doing another couple episodes of the show. So what, like this five year, four year stretch from like 2018 onward and like, you're kind of like, like job hopping a little bit, like, like yeah. t talk about like that kind of struggle of just trying to, because again, in your head, you think like, all right, this is the start of something. I can generate some momentum. Things are yeah. like one thing's going to lead to another and just having to kind of bridge those gaps between, oh, man. between jobs. The gaps are brutal. Uh, even if you like, so that's kind of the, one of the reasons that they're striking right now is like mm -hmm. you could get a writing job and a good one. And it lasts you a month. And then it's like, what do I do until like, hopefully that show comes back. And if it doesn't, then I'm just kind of out there. And it's, it's so hard to string together a living, especially if you're not getting residuals. And then, uh, there was that. And, um, yeah, it just went so long between jobs. Uh, I wound up like getting a sales job. I actually moved out of the city for all of 2019. Oh, wow. So my parents were renting a little place in, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, which is like an hour and a half, hour 15 from the city. And uh, I said, all right, let me save some money. Even if I take the train in a few times a week, it's still cheaper than paying rent. So mm -hmm. I just went and lived with them. I was like, I'll do this for a couple months, turned into an entire year. And uh, Was that because of COVID or just because? Of it was before COVID. Okay, it was so 2019. It was like just because of financial reasons. Like yeah, just like I was between jobs and like I had savings. I probably could have hustled something out, but I was like, let me just kind of take it easy and, you know, I'll just focus on comedy full time and just be a professional son <laughs> at home. And uh, I was doing that. And yeah, I was just faking the funk for a while. I was coming in. I was producing a show, doing a weekly show at like Lucky Jack's and then later The Stand um, coming into the city. But it was it was still kind of embarrassing. I was like, I had all this momentum and I, I was like, where, where are the comedy jobs that I was getting? Like when I was worse at comedy, I'm not even, <laughs> you know, it's not like I've, I'm I'm better now and I'm getting fewer opportunities. It's, it's very frustrating. But a couple of things popped up during that time. Like I wrote for the Sports Illustrated Award Show. Um, I wrote for, uh, I just reached out to Nikki Glazer. We had like kind of interacted online. We barely knew each other. And I was like, hey, I see you're doing the roast. Here's my packet that they rejected. And she's like, you're in. Like write jokes for me. And uh, oh, that's great. She was awesome. That that turned into. So um, it was for a specific roast. Or yeah, like, it was the roast of Alec Baldwin. OK, so you had written it through. I had like tried to go Comedy through like the, pop, the proper channels and like submitted a packet. And I didn't hear anything back. And then so you just uh, went straight to the source. And uh, I wouldn't recommend that, but it, it paid off in that instance. And um, and then she later hired me 
when I first moved back to the city um, to write for her show that was going to be on E. Um, oh, that's right. Was it, what show was that? It was. Um, I think our working title was Nikki Glazer is obsessed, mm-hmm. and it w- we were like doing a test episode. We had like a ten episode order, and then COVID hit, and it was like that's it. Oh shit! So it was like ev- I, g- I kind of was starting to get everything I wanted again, and I was all psyched because like I was back in the city. I had a comedy day job, and I got passed at the comedy cellar around that time, and I was like. This is it. This is everything I ever wanted. Mm-hmm. And I, let's go. <laughs> this is the beginning of a new chapter in my life. I mean, COVID, done. What did you do during that whole year, year and a half? Like, what did that look like for you? Yeah. I think I got on stage four times. Same. In, yeah, from the point that the pandemic hit through the end of 2020, maybe four times. Where And th- that's like park shows. And I was like, I've had quite enough of this. I think I'm good on, on performing. I'm good on bombing in Central Park. <laughs> um, yeah, I had no job. I was, what I, I pieced together some little odds time and ends. Time is very hazy like during that oh, whole it's, time it's, frame. It's, it's hard to like really linear, linearly put it together, I exactly, feel like. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's like down the memory hole for sure. And we all try to block it out. But um, it <laughs> Did you do any of those Central Park shows? I didn't do a Central Park show. Good. I did the the only times I got on stage were through New York Comedy Club doing one of their rooftop shows. Right. So I did like four. I was booked for four of those shows during uh, a 14, 13 month yeah. time frame. And like I never really, I didn't seek out any of those sh- the park shows. I didn't seek out any of the drive-in shows. Good. Um, I like you did not miss out. I, I know. I I saw. Seinfeld gives some kind of interview of like I don't like compromised versions of things and I was like yeah that's you're gonna be, a billionaire I know that's gonna be my mantra too even though I have nowhere near the talent or success or the money of Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> the thing that always makes me so mad about Jerry Seinfeld is that his last job before comedian was uh, uh he was a part-time like brunch waiter yes and he like paid his rent working like two shifts a week dude it's like, not that, here's you, man. <laughs> I think I told the story in the podcast before and this is such a funny i don't know how truthful it is but i mean he told it in one of his documentaries on netflix yeah because he was that brunch waiter two shifts a week granted he lived very cheaply it was new york in the 70s but still yeah and then he got a job hosting the weekly wednesday show at the comic strip and it paid him get this 125 dollars per show come on and that was enough he said once i got that job i went back to the restaurant i handed him my apron and i never had another regular job again <laughs> i think the so, pay went down exactly <laughs> like not even in real not even adjusted for inflation like the the, the, the total, actual the monetary monetary value number is, is 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 less now and, <laughs> but he could he could live on 500 dollars a month easily he was in saving New York city money. yeah and like he was like yeah i just ate peanut butter sandwiches it's like but you had the apartment but anyway i'm not I'm, trying to burn the jerry bridge if you want to take me on the road i'm available yeah of course and i'll, I'll fight jp to the death if uh you know you want to see if us you like, want to snap it. a pool stick over your knee and let us stab <laughs> each other joker style i will do that for you jerry i will look the other way i'll look <laughs> but yeah it's, it's like you want to know how i got these bits <laughs> but I, it just it is such a I don't know man it's such a frustrating thing to hear all of these old stories and old bits <laughs> yeah. of advice from older comedians and they just have no it's like that same kind of like boomer general career advice exactly. like just walk in and shake their hands just and get a job in the mail room mm-hmm, stop spending so up. much money on avocado toast and you'll <laughs> yeah. be good to go like the, the simply buy a house build some <laughs> equity what are you doing paying rent it but just none of it none of it lines up and it, it's just there the not only is it frustrating to like not have those things or like to struggle for them but like how disconnected from reality the advice is and you, you almost feel like tony soprano in the first episode it's like if you, you ever feel like you got in at the end of something what happened to gary cooper mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah whatever happened to lenny bruce <laughs> what happened to drake Sather? uh but yeah like that's why I think comics of like our generation and after are, our generation and the later generations are just going to have murderers. Like we've had to do just insane things. Oh, you mean like 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 funny murderers? I literal meant like, murderers like, and like people yes. who are c- driven crazy by how difficult comedy. Both. Is. We will have both. We'll have like some of the best comedians who have ever walked the earth, and also lunatics, complete sociopaths. Like the park shows, 
if, if you ever did a show in Central Park, Central Park has an ordinance against amplification. Right. You can't have a speaker. You can't have anything. So I was just standing under a tree branch on Sheep Meadow and just yelling and bombing mercilessly to people who are like spread out. You ever see your jokes just go across a great expanse into nothingness? It's just... Sound like a Cormac McCarthy novel right now. Oh, it was like, The Road, baby. That yeah. was the, There's comics doing The Road, and then there's like The Road level. <laughs> the Road, misery. the novel. The yeah. literary version of The that Road. That was my blood meridian standing yeah. under that tree. <laughs> there's a part of me that's like, sometimes when I hear about those shows or people talk about them, it's, oh, maybe like because I didn't want to do them. I don't love comedy enough, but I, like I don't know, man. I was at home in New Jersey with my in-laws. Like my father-in-law, like was immunocompromised. It's like yeah, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna, I'm not gonna risk COVID for a fucking park show, no, you know? No way. And you, didn't, I did like one or two of those, and I was like, I realize that I'm not missing out. I can go back into my apartment and just kind of hang out and do whatever it is I do. You don't have to feel that comedy guilt that you get sometimes, right. where it's like I'm not, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing the park shows. It's like actually, I shouldn't be doing the park shows. No, the park shows are. Uh, could be a net negative. I mean, I'm sure people came up with good bits that they still use and whatever during like that, that period of comedy. But like, it was just so brutal. It felt like a, a you know a losing venture. I feel like it was less about the bits for those shows and more about like the like whatever insane comedians started during COVID. Oh my or god. Like, doing their early years yeah (laughs) like like, it's like all the kids that couldn't go to school for a year they're gonna be completely socially maladjusted (laughs) but like i think it's just about like the the kind of communities and like friendships that they built that like i feel like i'm i don't want to say like not a part of or excluded from but it's just like i wasn't there so i don't know those people and like they kind of have their own yeah it's a whole new class world yeah it is and like like, starting to get to know a lot of those people yeah but only just now in 2023 there's been like a generational turnover i think like yeah like as far as the mics and like the the cool independent shows like that seems to be all gen z now and like millennials time is is over yeah pretty much euphoria it's not girls anymore (laughs) yeah exactly and entourage is long since set sail oh man but we uh but like yeah i was just talking to some some other comics of like our class and it was just like yeah it just feels splintered now Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just for us. Maybe the younger generation has like their places where they congregate, but it seems like there are fewer like key shows where there's no you know cabin or plating factory, knitting factory. Yeah, they're all gone. Like places where you would just go and hang on a weeknight, and you know if you if you were done with spots and you just like I see th- your friends. I think a lot of that now has to do with how much comedy is like online and like yeah, because the, the reason for those sh- yeah it was to go to see your friends, but ostensibly it was also to go and show face and be like hey i'm around i'm a comedian i'm here don't forget about me and now that just happens when someone posts a reel you know what i mean yeah exactly yeah that's what you have to do you have to like grasp for attention online from people who live less than a mile from you i know it's tough and i don't i don't know about you but like that stuff doesn't it's never come naturally to me like not at all yeah so i've had to really force myself and learn the technology as i yeah with this all this fucking contraption and setup around here like we were saying before we recorded it's a different job like it's not being a comedian it's a different thing and you have to learn it in order to be a comedian and that like romanticized like 80s 90s version of like wake up at noon write jokes for an hour go do spots that's my life and it's like that's that's not even close to the workload that we have to do now that's what i was thinking about recently like the next norm mcdonald is somewhere out there who's like brilliant but can't manage their life yeah. And it's like hilarious, but you know, isn't going to do the homework. And like, what chance do they have? Right. It's got, it's going to take a miracle for someone like that to, you know, to have comedy success. Cause they're not going to want to do all like the, the extracurriculars and like <sighs> the stuff they have to do to promote themselves. And like, it, I guess, I don't know, I guess that really is the ultimate question. Like is being funny sufficient? And I, I feel like the answer is no, but I don't want to be like nihilistic about the whole thing. Yeah. I feel like, I lean towards no, but I feel like if you're funny enough for a long enough time and th- things will happen for you. Yeah. Like I've kind of been not saying that I've been like hilarious, but like the, you know, in the last few years, I've kind of been America's guest mm-hmm. where like a couple of really good comics have taken me out on the road just cause I knew them. And it's like, like a couple years ago, I, I, I did a bunch of dates with Sam Morrill. More recently, I, I went out with Stavros for like 12 or 15 cities, something like that. Rachel Feinstein takes me out like every now and then, but it's like, yeah, if I didn't know them, what the fuck would I have going on? But how was that 
that experience with Stav specifically, yeah. just because like he's so huge now, and yeah. like like to do theaters, he's the famous guy on the plane. I know. <laughs> Is he really like? He, yeah. He's such a distinct look, and also my wife's cousin. Because, like, when Stav first moved here, he would hang out with, like, us, like, DC right. comedians. And so, like, I, my wife had met him years and years ago. Same with Adam Freeland, who's, yeah. like, now in the news cycle with, like, Taylor Swift, <laughs> which is just insane. Yeah. But um, my wife's cousin asked her, like, oh, does Pete know Stavros Halkis? And she, Kristen's like, yeah, I used to, like, hang out with him. It, like, when he was – we were, like, with him when he started Comptown. Yeah. And and she he was like, wait, what's Comptown? He just knew Stav as, like, the comedy – like, the guy on YouTube, YouTube and yeah. Instagram, but not through – one of the most influential podcasts yeah. of like the last like six, seven years. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Cause I, I remember, I think I met Stav shortly after you did what, after he moved to the city and we just like known each other since Mike's and then like, yeah, the come town started and then like doing his live show or whatever a few times. So we were always like buddies, but, uh, we, we became like better friends, like on this tour, just from hanging out a lot. And, uh, it's hilarious to like everywhere we go, he gets recognized. Like, wow. we're we're on the plane. P- at, like every guy in their twenties who gets on, like, <laughs> stuff. And like, we, we, dude, we were in, we were in Buffalo. It is negative fuck you degrees out. We're going from the hotel to a diner, like five minutes away. We're walking down the street. There's nobody out, and a mail truck pulls up, and a mailman gets out to like put some some mail in a in a mailbox, and he's like, stuffy. <laughs> it's like. This is nuts. But what's that experience like? Because you're doing theaters on that tour. So like yeah. to go to theaters and be having great sets on the road. And then like you said, now you're working a day job. So like the yeah. turnaround of like going, is there like like a, like an emotional whiplash? Or are you able to kind of like appreciate those experiences when you have them? Or yeah, like- I've been, I've, I've been uh, doing a better job of like appreciating the stuff in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I was like, because uh, that's something like I always kind of daydreamed about, right? Just like being in the wings on a big stage and like, your name is called to go out there in front of like 1200 people or whatever. And it's like, Oh, I've visualized this thing before. So it's like, I should just be appreciative that this is happening. It's not my show, but it's like, I'm just so psyched to be there, to be hanging out in the green room at the hotel on the plane, the whole trip. It's all fun from beginning to end. It's awesome. So I was like, I was excited about that. It was like, there's a little bit of an adjustment to doing theaters coming from clubs, uh, but it was it wasn't too steep of a learning curve. It was just like these theaters hold, you know, in some cases up to like fourteen hundred, and I think the next leg of the tour will be like three thousand seaters. Wow! But they'd be they'd come backstage. Stage managers would be like, "All right, we've got six hundred in. Let's start." Oh so yeah, I'd, yeah. So I'd be going out there, and there would be like over the course of my set, three hundred people would take their seats. So was, uh, you kind of gotta get them. You gotta bring the energy right away you don't get as much leeway to like settle into your set. You kind of just have to be like, ah, you know, you got to come out and like really pop. Yeah. You got to like play to the size of the room a little bit. And, uh, which is not normally my style, but it was a really valuable experience for me. Cause like I've always been described as a low energy comic and there's a way to be low energy in big rooms, but you have to like find that balance and find that comfort level where you can like hold your space on the stage and like bring them to you. Something that really stood out to me I, when I watched Louis CK's uh, Madison Square Garden live stream, we see had Adrian Appalucci open up. Yeah. And she Crushed. is, she is like low energy, but I would say like she's more deadpan, but it, yeah. it, like the, it even came through the screen of like, you could just, she f- filled the room with her energy, even though it was more kind of yeah reserved. And like, I don't know how, like it's she, just, it's hard to describe brought them to her. It's kind of like, you don't need to be jumping around and doing cartwheels, but you need to have a certain poise, like a fake it till you make it act like you've been there before mm-hmm. type of thing. Like you're a, a CEO giving a tech t- TED talk or something like that. You need to just kind of have a presence about you and just right. be like, I belong on big stages. So presence doesn't necessarily mean like high energy, but it just, it's, yeah. it's like a certain kind of almost, I don't know. To me, it feels almost like an indescribable sort of thing, but it's it's like porn. You know it when you see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very much. It is what I beat off to. But how how quick was that? Like, because when you start doing those theaters, like, how long did it take you to really kind of settle in and like get a feel for like doing a set while hundreds of people are like filling into a theater? I'd say it took me. So the first one I did was the Wilbur in Boston, 
And I remember going out there for the first three, four minutes, I was like, I'm not doing that well. I thought it would be like instant kill. Mm-hmm. It would be, they'd be like on a tee and I'd be like, oh, I'm not really, I wasn't quite ready for this. And then after a couple of minutes, once I settled in, I was like, this is just a comedy show. I might need to enunciate a little better. I might need to like control my pacing, control my eye lines a little better and like not treat it like I'm on a club stage, but just be like, okay, I'm here. We can do this. And then once I settled in, it got a lot easier. When you say control your eye lines, what does that mean exactly? Just where, so there's a, there's a mezzanine and a balcony Mm -hmm. and I was self-conscious of like, oh, am I ignoring these people? Am I not looking up there? And then I was like, I'm just going to kind of play to the places that I normally do on stage, even in a small room. Okay. And I found like, I, I generally look on these like oblique angles, usually above people's heads. I don't make a lot of deliberate eye contact with people. And I was like, I could kind of still do that here and just settle in, like play with the game you have, you know, don't try to change it up. To right. Make. Cause I remember I saw Todd Barry open for Louie at the garden, like 2015 and it was still Todd Barry. He just had the mic in the stand, stood and delivered joke after joke. And it was like the, the this 15,000 person audience came to him and it was like just another set. That's great. And it's so like, this is something I used to, or like I would hear playing football, like going from like high school to college. It's like, well, it's still yeah. football. It's still the same game. It's like, well, it's not like the same game, but I guess like the mechanics are still the same. And if you hold on to that, those kind of like fundamentals, triple threat position, you know, playing yeah. basketball, like triple threat position, ready to, you know, go wherever you, wherever you are like that. I guess that, that does translate no matter like the space that you're in. Yeah, I think it does. And, uh, thank God the learning curve isn't as steep with comedy venues as it is from like high school sports to college <laughs> yeah. sports. It's like, you the, need like two, three years to like, the holes aren't open as long. You got to see that. Yeah. Like, yeah. If every, if the audience was just way harder, when you got to the bigger rooms, that wouldn't be fair. No, definitely not. It, it wouldn't be good. Before we wrap up here, just as a writer, I want to get your perspective on the strike. Yeah. And kind of potential resolutions, just because, again, from an outsider perspective, I don't know how the hell they're going to solve this thing because, like, I don't know where the money is in streaming. It seems like they're like all these companies just lose money. So it's like these companies like Netflix and, and everything else, it seems like they can barely turn a profit, let alone pay a fair wage. Well, okay. I don't, and I don't know the exact economics of streaming, but I was reading about this concept today called um, Hollywood accounting. Um, uh, okay. So yeah, a lot of, I don't know if it's the same for streamers, but movie studios will definitely lead you to believe that they're losing money. Okay. They'll officially lose money. Like I think return of the Jedi has officially not turned a profit. So like a lot of these movies that you'll see, they had like a $30 million budget and they made $300 million. They still didn't turn a profit because what they do is the studios form a subsidiary that is meant to just make that specific movie. Like the example that this YouTube video showed was like um, for Harry Potter Order of the Phoenix, a new company was started by, I guess, Warner Brothers called Phoenix Inc. or whatever. And they... Like the movie is on their books and what they have to do is pay the studio an exorbitant amount of money like for the IP for, you know, expenses to create like to make the movie. So at the end of the day, they um, they are like reporting a loss. They're not reporting any profits. And so they don't need to pay like uh, Daniel Radcliffe his back end points on profits or whatever. Phoenix Inc. is losing a ton of money. Exactly. Okay, so it's it's like they shift the onus onto something else yeah and so that they don't have to account for the money that the parent company makes exactly on the whole yes and i'm not saying that's what netflix and hulu do love you guys but uh whatever they do like it wouldn't surprise me basically okay they, they could say that they're they're taking losses they're not profitable but i kind of take that with a grain of salt it might not be taken might not be something you should take at face value Okay. So they, I mean, think about how many millions of subscribers they have, all the monthly recurring revenue that they have. Right. Like, but I also think about like the exorbitant amounts of money they spend on like talent and huge promotion. Yeah. But like Chappelle rock $20 million per special. Like I, I, but I guess, I mean, how many subscribers, I I can't do the math in my head, but I guess that's not $20 million isn't a ton of subscribers if they're all paying like 
18 bucks a month. Yeah. But the I point is, it's so convoluted how TV and how streaming, how it makes money, how it spends money. But like, essentially, it really does seem like the writers are getting screwed out of uh, streaming residuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, mini rooms are bad for writers. I feel like these are... So what's a mini room for anyone who, who doesn't know what that is? I mean, so like traditionally, your favorite sitcom would have a writing staff of like 14, 15 people. They'd all be in a big room. And uh, uh, later, like more recently, shows have have become a lot leaner, and they have like small writing rooms. It could be, you know, three or four people. Um, so what th- that results in is like f- obviously fewer jobs for the writers out there. So it just makes it that much harder to string together a career, go from show to show. And on top of that, the model has become like short seasons, eight episode seasons. Um, and on top of that, a lot of streamers are like cutting off shows. And canceling them, even if they're popular, after like four seasons, because after that point, it's in the contract that they have to pay a significantly higher amount of money to the talent who are involved. So they just like scrap these shows. And and sometimes shows get scrapped for tax reasons. There's a lot of accounting that is way beyond my comprehension that goes into uh, the business. Yeah, I guess because like nobody's going to cancel their Netflix subscription because they canceled one show. True. Like they're even if it's like their favorite show, they're not you know they still want to watch Selling Sunset or whatever it's the not hell like, like crap is on there. Yeah, it's not like what you know. Even if it was a super popular show, it's not what the Big Bang Theory was to CBS because there's only so many slots in a week. Right. Like it's they have a, a much broader you know bandwidth to work with. Is that like when when writers come on for a streaming kind of show? Is is it built into the contract of like you were only paid for this one time and that's it? Um, or is it just kind of like I think it, so? It has to do with like the language of like. They do get residuals, I think, but it's like a tiny, tiny sum. Mm-hmm. And I could be way off base about that. But I do remember from the few writing jobs I've had, there have been like, there's been specific language in the contract. It's like, this is what you get and that's it. Okay. Like, you're not entitled to residuals for this show, blah, 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 whatever it is. Just like a one time, you know, buyout. And it's like the same thing with Jerry Seinfeld being able to live off of. <laughs> $500 a month from hosting a weekly show at the comic strip <laughs> and you know there were, weren't as many comedians and you know maybe there was more money around then with, yeah. with comedy specifically but like if you were a staff writer I mean not even on something like like I think of a show like like Just Shoot Me or yeah. like, like like Suddenly Susan those shows in like the 90s and NBC that ran like four or five seasons yeah you made great money yeah and because you got like the and there were 22 episodes there were more episodes and that means more like shows to go or more episodes to go into syndication I, I feel like there's there has to be people who like wrote on a season of Home Improvement who like never have to work just they, retired. They can work a like live a middle class life off of like one season if of they, Home like, Improvement they, money. They probably don't, but if they had to, they could scrape out a living off that money. And like the the thing with that is the twenty two episode seasons. There's only so many writers in a room. The way a scripted series like that works is one writer writes an entire episode and you get paid a nice fee for that. Right. Like I I think I've heard like on the order of thirty forty grand for writing episodes. So if you have a 22 episode season, you might write two, maybe three entire episodes with your name on them in that season that you're going to get residuals for. You're going to get a nice fat check for, and then you're getting paid, you know, your weekly salary, which is good too. Oh, so like, like writing an episode is basically like a bonus. Yeah. Okay. And then you get a weekly salary for just being in the room and breaking ideas. You basically go away from the room to write an episode of the show and then you bring it back for punch up and rewrites and all this stuff. Okay. And do you see like, just from your perspective, what the resolution might be, how long it might take. Do you have any kind of yeah. idea? The resolution is just pay the guys, yeah. <laughs> pay the writers. Like it, they, I mean, I guess all good compromises, the sign of a good compromise is when both sides are equally dissatisfied. It, I think it has to come out in the writers and actors favor too. Cause the, the, the actors have a lot of legitimate gripes too. Yeah. The, the AI thing is terrifying. The AI thing, the um, self tape thing. I've done a little bit of acting stuff where what's like, the, what's the self tape thing? Like you are self taping auditions. So you're basically doing all the work of like, Oh yeah. The same thing with comedians where it's like you're generating your own, your you're own generating kind of your thing. Like if I had a self tape audition, I would have to call you up like, Hey, are you free? Can you come over and read? Okay, you can't read. Let me. Can we set up something over Zoom mm-hmm. so we can do like a, a do my self tape and I'm setting up my camera and I'm rehearsing my lines and like trying to get this thing down. It's a lot of work. Just yeah. to, that goes into just get acquiring a job. But that's that's the acting side. But like on the on the strike side, like 
uh, the meme that's going around is like, well, the the AMPTP is saying we'll wait them out until people start losing their houses mm. and go broke, and it's like the meme is like jokes on you i'm always broke yeah like, i think I'm, it was something uh, about yeah. like uh it's like when we went to vietnam it's like you don't understand the conditions these people are prepared <laughs> to live under yeah exactly it's the vc they're they're gonna dig tunnels underneath the studios and trap you in wooden spikes but uh i think at the end of the day the the writers will emerge victorious with this one it's like and you know i think it has to happen if if there's going to be like viability in this business a lot yeah. of talent is going to go elsewhere and, yeah and like what do you what do you think is going to drive that is it just going to be like all the content is going to dry up and they're like like studios and streamers aren't going to have shit to put out like you can only go so far with unscripted stuff like what is that yeah i think so like yeah it, the effects of this haven't hit us yet and they won't for a while but it's like this whole period where nothing is being written and nothing is being produced there, that's like a there's no movies next summer like they, they can't yeah, finish right. filming like mission impossible dead reckoning 2 or whatever right yeah, exactly. Deadpool, all that shit. So it's going to screw us over like next year in terms of, you know, from a fan's perspective, what we're going to get. Um, but um, I think as even more avenues open up and like people are making their own stuff that they could put on YouTube or whatever, people are just going to go do that. Like even young comedic talent coming out of Harvard or wherever, you know, writers come from, uh, they're going to say, okay, I could go the traditional route, I, you know, get these nice guild writing jobs with benefits and everything but like if i find some money i could just make my own thing and i can just or i could be part of someone's vision who's making their own thing right making make an indie series indie movie put stuff on youtube like do it yourself so like if the producers and the studios don't want to you know pay the talent then the talent's just going to go do it somewhere else right it's like it's going to become more lucrative just to be an independent like with, with youtube ad revenue yeah. or whatever as opposed to trying to ingratiate yourself with something that doesn't treat you fairly in the first place yeah look at like shane gillis he was like okay i'm just gonna go make a show yeah and they did and like you know i i don't i assume they made money off it but it's like they found their fans and they just did their own thing it's like all right if i'm gonna have to go outside the studio system so be it right and even if they didn't specifically make money on you know, Gillian Keeves, people seeing that bought tickets to Shane. They, they paid for the Patreon yeah. for, for the podcast. Matt does stand up too, right? Yeah. So it's like yeah, that, it, that downstream it, effects. It pays dividends elsewhere. And I, a I, lot of the guys who did big YouTube comedy specials in like 2019, 2018, 2020, the streamers came knocking mm -hmm. and they were like, all right, we want in. Yeah. Norman's on Netflix now. Yeah. And that exactly. was like the whole thing. Nobody wanted out to lunch. Yeah. A couple of people have, are going to have Netflix specials coming out in the next couple of years or so that are going to be like, okay. So it's like, yeah, they're, they're coming back around, but yeah, it, at some point it might just be like too late. Like you don't, you don't, you didn't fuck with me at the beginning. Some people might just say, Hey, look, my last YouTube thing did wonders for me. I'll, I'll just do it again. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, make me an offer and uh, yeah, take that and sell tickets. Yeah. JP, where can people find you? Give us all the links, anything you want to share. Find me on the internet. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to grow my YouTube channel, so just uh, check out my YouTube channel, posting a lot of like short clips and stuff and trying to post more stand-up. Hopefully, I'll have like a stand-up special coming out like next year. Working on that, but in the meantime, get on board. Just search my name, JP McDade, and I'm on Instagram at McDadeBaby. Post a lot of stuff there too. Yeah, so, it's uh, stand up, roast battle stuff, sketches. JP's got good shit. Thank you, man. All right. Thanks for stopping by, man. Appreciate it.